on ABC New South Wales. This is the Country Hour with Amelia Bernasconi. Good afternoon. Thanks for joining us this Monday lunchtime. Today on the Country Hour, fears spray drift will decimate crops as many growers still try to get back on their feet. Farming families that didn't even get a crop in last year because of the floods and basically have put everything on the line to try and get crops in this year and recover. And later on today, we'll take a look at what roles genetics and feed sources play in influencing livestock emissions. But we love you to join us as well across the afternoon. You can text 0467 to be part of the conversations. We open up right here on the New South Wales Country Hour. But at six past 12, we were told to brace for a challenging fire season. And again, our firefighters have been stretched across the state over the weekend alongside our communities, particularly in the north of the state, who have faced a pretty tough few days. To get the latest on the fire situation, Inspector Ben Shepherd from the New South Wales Rural Fire Service is here. Good afternoon, Inspector. Good afternoon, Amelia. Thanks for having me on. No, thanks for joining us. Like we say, a busy time for you and the teams. Where do we stand this lunchtime? Everything looks to be at advice, and how are they contained? Yeah, look, uh, still uh, across New South Wales, more than 60 fires burning, of which are around about 25 of those are yet to be brought under control. So still a bit of work, but as you just mentioned, incredible hard, uh, hard work out there because it is so uh, very, very hot in parts of New South Wales. So this is going to extend through most places right through the week, and we are seeing some uh, elevated fire risk, especially as we start to move towards a sort of Wednesday, Thursday. So we are likely to see some further extreme fire weather on those days. So, look, it, it's going to be a, a testing week. Some of these fires burning in very remote parts of, of New South Wales. Um, so a lot of work to do. But, look, as you mentioned, uh, fortunately, everything's sitting at that advice level at the moment, but, look, still... Uh, it, it is burning uh, on such big uh, front that, that it's going to take some time before these fires are brought under control. Mm, and certainly everyone should be staying in touch, keeping an eye on your website and hopefully staying tuned to ABC as well if things change across the afternoon. Uh, ben, let's take a look at some of those bigger fires across the weekend in the Jumeric Valley uh, near, near Torrington there. How is that fire, the Trap Mountain fire? Yeah, so well, what we saw yesterday afternoon under some strengthening easterly winds, that fire, uh, basically started to move quickly uh, to, towards uh, basically uh, the, I want to try and get the name right, and I apologise if I get this wrong, but the, the, the actual Beattie River. Um, so look, it, there were a number of isolated rural properties in and around that, that Beattie River Road um, that, that did come under threat. But fortunately, as we moved into the evening, uh, we did see the, the actual fire activity just subside a little bit. Now, given the remoteness of that particular fire, um, that's going to take some time to be brought under control. There is broad containment options that they are looking at today. Um, but look, thankfully, not threatening property, but look, yeah, there are a number of communities that are going to have to continue to monitor that, that fire uh, over the coming days and if not even weeks uh, because it is going to take a broader containment strategy to bring that fire under control. And huge work as well, I imagine, over in the Pilliga Forest. What is it, 14,000-odd hectares that that Duck Creek fire has burnt through? I could see that smoke uh, driving up through Murrurundi on Saturday afternoon. Yeah, so each afternoon we tend to see that the, the level of activity on that fire in the Pilliga continue to, to sort of pick up and actually spread that fire further. So look, I think the main disruption with that particular one is obviously that continuous closing of the, of the newel. Um, uh, look, and the main reason for that is as that fire burns out and close to the road, obviously it does 
uh, then go on to, to actually burn or trees that have the potential then to fall across the roadway. And what we don't want to see is anyone hurt or injured as a result of those falling trees. So, again, people are just going to have to, to monitor that. But, look, the other aspect of all these fires, as you've touched on, is that smoke. Um, it, is, it is on certain days, obviously, pushing large distances. And then we continue to have a number of people that continue to call triple zero just because they can smell that smoke. So if we can just ask that the public please only call triple zero so you see an unattended fire, if you're even close or within a few hundred metres of these, these fires currently burning, you're likely at some stage over the coming days and weeks being able to smell the fires uh, as a result of, the, of that smoke drifting around. Inspector Ben Shepherd from the New South Wales RFS is with us at 10 past 12 on the Country Hour. Let's look ahead to this week, Inspector. Where are, are there any points of the state in particular that you're keeping a close eye to? Yeah, look, really, everywhere west of the divide is continuing to see such dry and, and hot temperatures um, that we, we are seeing high fire danger really stretching at this stage right through the week and even into early the, the, the following week. The peak days at this stage do look to, to be around Wednesday and Thursday, uh, and then possibly again on the uh, on Saturday. Sorry, so uh, that there is a possibility extreme fire danger through parts of the Riverina, but getting very close in places like the southwestern parts of the state as well. Then on Thursday, we, we're likely to see that extend into places like the lower central West Plains. Uh, so look, uh, the, we just need everyone just to be mindful uh, as we start to see these hot temperatures. That recent wet weather is, is starting to dry out very quickly and even that increased grass growth that we saw uh, as a result of those recent storms and wet weather, that is going to start to cure and dry out and we're going to start to see uh, higher fire risk in grassland areas once again. So we just need people to be mindful of that, continue to be prepared, but also just to encourage that conversation in the household each and every day. What are we going to do if a fire starts and threatens today? Does everyone know what their job is and what they're going to do? Mm, absolutely great reminder there. Ben, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thanks, Amelia. Cheers. Thank you. Inspector Ben Shepherd from the New South Wales RFS there. It is 11 past 12 and Dave in Trundle wants to know when this endless heat wave will end. 36 to 44 degrees, when will it end? I think we're all asking that question. Dave, we will put that to the bomb in about uh, 20 minutes time. Uh, Staying with the RFS, in some other news today, the Rural Fire Service Benevolent Fund, which is a charity created to provide support to RFS members and their families during challenging times, well, the Benevolent Fund has been made official today and the partnership aims to leverage community efforts in litter reduction and recycling to support that fund. So you might be... um, you might know about your local return and earn, those vending machines you can pop your bottles and cans through. So from now until April next year, you can choose to donate that 10 cent return back to the Rural Fire Service Benevolent Fund. You're listening to the New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. And always good to hear from you across the afternoon. If you want to join us, you can text 0467 684. You might have some thoughts on this one because cotton growers fear their summer crop could be decimated due to the impact of spray drift. More than a 1,000 hectares of cotton crops on properties around Condoblin and Lake Cajeligo have been affected in recent weeks by the spray, prompting a plea for all farmers to be more vigilant when it comes to spraying. Agronomist Emma Aliff has visited three properties where the cotton crop has suffered significant damage. She told Tim Fuchs what's happening is avoidable. The biggest concern at the moment is primarily minor to moderate phenoxy damage in our summer crops, so specifically cotton. And the big concern is that it's only December. We've had a big rain event, particularly in the western regions, and we've got a long way to go till picking. And so what kind of damage are you seeing at the moment? 
So we're seeing leaf distortion, typical for noxie symptoms, which include leaf curling um, and what we call witch's fingers in the crop. It's very visual, but coming with that is also um, stunting of growth and then the loss of the reproductive structures in those crops. And how many properties that you've seen for yourself have been impacted and where are they? So from what I've seen, uh, there's three farming businesses that I've observed damage ranging from um, large areas of minor damage right through to smaller sections of quite severe damage. And those farms are kind of spread between Lake Cajeligo and Condoblin. And do we know at this stage uh, what the cause is? With the symptoms, the best guess is going to be phenoxy of some description and more than likely ester or amine that's been sprayed in a fallow um, post-harvest spray or potentially even a late winter crop like wheat salvage spray pre-harvest potentially two weeks ago. Does this happen because the spray occurs during a windy period and then it just blows onto other properties? So that can happen, direct drift. I would say in these scenarios, though, this is probably more um, being caused by an inversion event. So that's where on ground level, um, it's actually very still and very calm. Likely someone spraying sunrise, sunset as an inversion settling or someone spraying at night. Um, The fine particles don't hit the ground. They float around in the air and they actually float upwards and they'll hit an airstream further up. Um, and they can go kilometres away until they hit a change in air temperature or until the inversion breaks, and those fine particles will then settle on the on whatever's underneath them, and in this case it's been some sensitive cotton crops. And what's the impact on cotton growers uh, when you are impacted by spray drift? Yeah, so it depends on how bad the damage is and how consistent the damage is. So damage this early, we're optimistic that these crops will be able to somewhat recover. There's likely to be some yield lag in some of the more serious cases. Um, But the bigger concern is that if we've already had one more than likely inversion drift event, that we're setting ourselves up to see many more um, with the coming months and on the back of this rain. And, and that could mean, you know, basically total losses. And for these three farms that I've visited, you know, these are mum and dad farming families that didn't even get a crop in last year because of the floods and basically have put everything on the line to try and get crops in this year and recover and get their farming businesses back on track and this could be enough to to decimate what they're doing. Because there are significant financial implications for growers uh, who are impacted by spray drift but there are also um, penalties that that, that are in place for farmers who who are not using um, spray and chemicals in the right way and that leads leads to the problems that we see. Correct. And for the people that are applying these chemicals, like you're, they're the ones that are also wasting money because if the chemical's ending up 30, 40 kilometres away on a sensitive crop, it's not landed on the paddock and it's not doing the jobs on the weeds that you're trying to control. And we know in this day and age that some of our commonly used herbicides like Roundup aren't cheap and farming is expensive. So we need to be doing everything right to keep chemical in our own paddocks and I'm a dry land farmer so you know we're trying to keep chemical on our place and do the best job that we can while also being mindful of the people around us who are growing sensitive crops. So what's the advice that uh, that you'd like to put out there to try and alleviate the issues? 
Get on to Sasha Crop. It's a free website where you can um, have a look and see where your nearest sensitive summer crops are. And if you're in Victoria, this could mean things like tomatoes. If you're in the Riverina, it could mean things like grapes. So familiarise yourself with where the sensitive crops are. Um, GRDC and um, CRDC have joined forces to create an inversion tower network which, once again, is a free login online site where you can find your nearest inversion tower and it'll tell you whether you have an inversion currently. It'll tell you whether you're at risk of getting an inversion in the next two hours. Familiarise yourself with them and use them. And if you're not getting expert advice from an agronomist, please go and seek advice around safe chemistries to use, around what nozzles to be using, around the right spraying conditions. That's Emma Ailiff. She's an agronomist from Lake Gajelligo, speaking there with Tim Fuchs about already seeing a bit of spray drift activity. If you've got some thoughts on that, you can always text through here at the Country Hour. Our number is 0467 Start your day with the most reliable local news, issues and talkback on ABC Breakfast. Every morning we bring you the stories, the interviews and discussions that matter to you. You'll hear from the experts, the leaders and listeners like you who share opinions, questions and personal stories. ABC Breakfast, the show that informs you, challenges you and connects you. Each weekday from 6 on ABC Radio or the ABC Listen app. Right now it is 18 past 12. You're tuned to the New South Wales Country Hour. Amelia Bernasconi with you today. And across the weekend we saw a two-day fire ant blitz at the New South Wales-Queensland border. It's returned some pretty positive results as, of course, those biosecurity efforts continue to be ramped up to stop the spread of the highly invasive pest. All the trucks that were stopped during that blitz were found to be compliant with transport orders, which police say shows that people are taking the biosecurity threat seriously. Now, as we know, fire ants pose a serious threat to many industries, including the $31 billion grain sector. This afternoon, this afternoon we're joined by Colin Bettles, the Chief Executive of Grain Producers Australia. Good afternoon, Colin. Good afternoon, Amelia. Thanks for having me. No, thanks for your time today. How well do you feel the industry is prepared? For red fire ants? Mm-hmm. Well, I think from our point of view, um, for the Australian grains industry, we work through Plant Health Australia. So um, this might be a technical response to your question, but we're certainly well prepared working with Plant Health Australia and we've been working through those processes um, since 2004 when they established the emergency plant pest and response deed. But with fire ants, uh, they come under a different category and that's through the National Fire Ant Eradication Program and the National Environmental Response Agreement. So uh, depending on the categorisation of a detection uh, versus an incursion, um, industry is uh, notified and certainly we're becoming more and more aware of the importance of biosecurity. It's very topical at the moment with a number of processes going on, including a Senate inquiry into red fire ants. Um, so I think we're raising more awareness of biosecurity every day and people are being more and more vigilant um, and through PHA, we know that producers have the on-farm biosecurity signs, for example, that are distributed through the Grains Biosecurity Program. So um, with Fire Ants, though, specifically, as part of our submission to the Senate inquiry that's going on at the moment, um, that we're looking at what the actual data is in terms of the impact of Fire Ants on the grains industry because we've got um, some information on the US experience, but the eradication program 
um, the National Fire and Eradication Program has actually limited the spread of the, the pest here. We know it's, um, it's got over the, the border into New South Wales recently, um, but, but that means we haven't seen the actual direct impacts on the grains industry here. So we don't have the data. So mm. possibly one of the recommendations we'll, we'll be making is for um, a bit more research to look at the actual experience in Australia. Yeah, well, of course, it's not new to Australia, but certainly new to our um, our producers south of the border. Have there been many discussions with, you know, sort of those anecdotal conversations with Queensland grain growers, any wisdom that can be shared south of the border as we brace to see if this spread is contained or not? Yeah, well, certainly we've seen um, an increase in funding recently from the, the Federal Minister, Murray Watt, and the Treasurer, Jim Chalmers, $411 million. So, through those agencies that I referred to before, um, this is a, an environmental pest, the, the fire ant. So they certainly stepped up there, Minister Murray Watt, um, and with the state government spared with their investment. But our members in New South Wales for GPA, New South Wales farmers, um, they've really belled the cat on this issue and um, they've been going pretty hard and making sure that uh, it doesn't come down into New South Wales any further. Um, and Queensland have been dealing with it since 2001, but that means our other state members are on alert as well. But a lot of it's cross-commodity, so we represent the grains industry's interests and, and all those grain producers who pay compulsory levies that go to Plant Health Australia and the work we do, like I mentioned before, the Grains Biosecurity Program. Um, so uh, we need to get the right data and right information. Um, you know, there's environmental impacts, there are social impacts, and as well as the direct commodity impact. So we want to make sure we got the facts uh, well established and that will be um, part of our submission to this, working very closely with our members in each of the states where grain is produced and in particular in Queensland and New South Wales. I guess the red fire ants aren't the only thing on your mind though when it comes to biosecurity. You mentioned there that the Agriculture Minister Murray Watt has put some more funding into the fire ant situation. Are you confident that with all the biosecurity threats for various industries, including grains, are you, are you confident that there's enough funding in that pool? Um, you know, I understand that there's been a lot of uh, particularly farming group opposition to an increase to the biosecurity levy. Do you think we're in a good position there? Well, it's a very good question. It's a big question as well. I mean, you break it down into a commodity-specific focus. I think certainly in our chairman, Barry Large, has been involved in the PHA processes of Plant Health Australia for two decades. So he's got a lot of experience and knowledge about what happens there uh, and the best way to respond to the grains industry. We've been dealing with Varroa as well for the past couple of years and the grains industry hasn't been directly impacted there. As in, We haven't had production shut down on any of our farms. But, you know, there are there are future impacts, for example, on hybrid canola seed. So we haven't had our members shouting down the door on that, but GPAs remain involved and engaged in those processes um, and we're contributing to the cost through the, the, the deed arrangement. Um, but some of the other um, planned industries, uh, you know, that are reliant on pollination for their production and, and therefore their, you know, economic um, activity... Um, they've really been under a lot of a lot of pressure. But the question I would ask is, you know, if we had Varroa and we did get one or two other um, significant outbreaks that needed to be eradicated, there's a question of how you would allocate government uh, resources. The best thing about the PHA arrangements under the deed is that the state governments get in like they did with Varroa and they deal with it. They get the resources to where they're needed to deal with the containment, the eradication 
Um, and then we are involved in discussions about cost sharing. But, um, you know, it's, it's a question that needs a lot more context uh, about the allocation of resources. And, and if you had multiple incursions, then, yes, that would be a strain on the system that's already struggling with a bit of capacity. Um, and, um, you know, would the taxpayer make a, a much bigger contri- contribution depending on the size of the, um, the threat? And just on that biosecurity levy as well, um, the government looking for a 10% increase there. Is is that timely given everything that we're facing or what do you think? Well, yeah, we're dealing with a lot of biosecurity issues and mm. issues around levies all at once. And I think um, stakeholders are very concerned uh, and there's a bit of confusion out there. But there's also a fair bit of anger about this um, proposed levy uh, from the federal government because it's actually really a tax. That's the main starting point. Producers are being regarded as beneficiaries of the system when we know there are multiple other beneficiaries. You know, the grain sector, if we produce grain and we're producing a lot more grain, then, you know, that's sold and there's a whole supply chain that are co-beneficiaries there. They're not being asked to contribute. But the money's going into consolidated revenue. That's the first point. Um, And so there's no guarantee that it'll actually strengthen biosecurity protections, never mind ones for the grains industry like capra beetle which if we got hit with capra beetle, it would be a $15.5 billion impact and no-one's getting any, any levies then as well. So, And growers have emergency response levies. Producers pay emergency response levies that are set at zero. So if we get these incursions, like we've seen with Varroa, then there's a future impact on your production. Now, the people bringing in these risks, the risk creators, uh, the importers, we've been asking that they make a fairer contribution and they don't have... For example, they don't have emergency levies that help pay for eradication, whereas producers do. So we think they've got it very wrong. Um, and, you know, there's a fair bit of activity going on there. Uh, and the minister's well aware of what our position is. So we think that they need to look at, um, you know, our existing contribution to the overall system. We haven't seen any economic modelling on that. We want to see that. We want to see what Treasury actually devi- defines uh, in their criteria as a beneficiary. So we've got a whole raft of um, um, concerns and questions about that. Uh, new legislation will need to be drafted and that will be presented to the Parliament um, early next year and that could also result in a, a political bum fight on biosecurity, which we also don't need um, because the opposition have already said clearly and David Littleproud, the Shadow Ag Minister, clearly said they don't support it. So it'll go into a crossbench Senate situation like we've seen with so many other issues in recent years and, you know, all sorts of horse trading could um, happen where the actual intent of what you're trying to achieve with strengthening the biosecurity system or recognition of what farmers already pay into the system is completely lost because someone's taken the opportunity to uh, get a political outcome that has absolutely nothing to do with the best interests of farmers and, quite frankly, our national economy. Well, we look forward to continuing this discussion. Colin, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Colin Bettles is the Chief Executive with Grain Producers Australia. We will reach out to the Ag Minister Murray Watt and continue that conversation. You might have some thoughts, uh, like Mick, who's texting to say, in America, three states have fire ants underground and it's impossible to eradicate. It is imperative to get them out of all of Australia. You can send your thoughts as well through on 0467922684. On ABC Radio New South Wales, this is the New South Wales Country Hour. 
We'll check the weather and take a look at the news in a moment. But what levels of methane emissions come from sheep? What roles do you think genetics and feed sources play in influencing those emissions? Well, those are some of the questions that Central West farmer Mark Mortimer is hoping to be answered in a University of New England project taking place at his property at Tullamore. He told Angus Fairley it's pretty exciting to be involved with. We've got a team from Armadale Uni and DPI on the farm and they're measuring methane output on 500 ewes. So they use a, a, a system called PAC, which is a portable accumulation chamber, which is just a, a big first best block. And um, they use water to seal it at the bottom. So it's just a little tray that's got a moat on it. Um, and you lift the box up and pop the sheep in and, and put it down and it uses a nice water seal. So yeah, I have to bring those sheep in and have them on feed in the yards the day before. So they're um, you know, 12 hours on a, on a known feed source. And then they can measure 12 sheep at a time. So every hour, 12 sheep get taken off the hay and then rotate and come around through this measuring system. And they've got to be in the chamber for 40 minutes. So they get a, a methane uh, oxygen and carbon measurement when they go in and they get another one 40 minutes later when they come out. Okay, so the measuring device is, is measuring that uh, methane that's accumulating after having come out the, the front end of the sheep? Yes, that's correct. So it's, it's obviously all their burps. Um, and they're actually using three separate devices at the moment. So they're still in their, I guess, discovery phase. Um, so they're wanting to know which device gives the most reliable measures. And you said uh, a known feed source. Is it just based on the one feed source at the moment or are you trialling the emissions from different feed sources? Yeah, right. So at the moment it's just one. And obviously um, for the project they're looking to get methane measurements from 10,000 sheep. So that's a combination of industry resource flocks and commercial farms like mine. 5,000 of those sheep have to have a feed intake measurement with them as well. So that's a, you know, they're a little bit more on the feed but it's not specifically about different feed sources. So this project's about the genetics of methane emissions and methane at the moment, I've seen different papers that suggest that the heritability of methane somewhere between 10 and 25%, depending on the paper you look at and how many animals they had available to test, which means 10 to 25% of the variation we see in methane is due to genetics. Okay, so on that point, I was going to ask if the, this work could eventually inform or could eventually be used to develop a breeding value that people may use when it comes to selection, selecting for, for less methane emissions. But if it's not a lot about genetics, then perhaps not? That's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, <clears throat> so there's plenty of traits in sheep that have a lower heritability, like I, I breed for reproduction in my sheep. And, the, you know, the heritability of reproduction is like 10%. So just because the heritability is low doesn't mean we can't make good changes in those traits. It just makes it a little, you know, we've got to be a little more careful, that's all. So even though it's, it's a, you know, most of the variation isn't due to genetics, genetics still does have an important part to play. And the beauty, if you make it a genetic change, the changes you can make are cumulative and permanent. So if we, you know, if we improve the genetics of our sheep now, we'll still get the benefits from that improvement in 100 years' time without doing any extra work. It's, you know, it's locked into the animal's DNA. And for you, Mark, what's the motivation to be involved in the project? Oh, I guess part of it always like new things. Um, so there's the, you know, the, 
the interest, you know, it's a new device, new data, something we haven't looked at. What can it tell me about my sheep? Is there synergies between, you know, methane's a tremendous energy source. Are the sheep that aren't capturing that methane not as productive? You know, so these are questions that I'd like to answer. It might be a really good win-win. And do you think, Mark, I mean, there's already a big spotlight on emissions from livestock, uh, fairly or unfairly, but do you think if that spotlight becomes more intense than being uh, having data around what emissions may or may not be coming from your animals could be useful to you? Um, yeah, absolutely. The more we know, you know, the more you can combat, you know, fair or even unfair accusations. You know, it's, without the data, we don't have, you know, we, all we can do is have an opinion and you can't act on just simply an opinion. But sometimes you have to defend against opinions and the only way we can do that from our perspective is through knowledge and data. That was Tullamore sheep farmer Mark Mortimer speaking there with Angus Furley on the country hour at 27 minutes away from one. And uh, Rod sent us a text to say if they put as much money into the ants as they do for roads in the city, Rod reckons the uh, fire ants would be eradicated in no time. Your thoughts always welcome here as well. You can text 0467 on the country hour where before one o'clock we'll take you to the Riverina to meet some rice growers and hear their concerns about the family's future under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and water buyback scheme. We're sitting on three properties here. My wife and I grew enough rice last year. 22 million people had a meal from the amount we produced ourselves. That's nearly the population of Australia. And also before one, Northern Rivers agents brace for an influx of cattle as Queensland prepares for Cyclone Jasper to reach land. But at 25 to 1, let's get the latest in news headlines with Lara Webster. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Millie. A pay dispute between the New South Wales government and paramedics will head to the Industrial Relations Commission this afternoon. Paramedics are threatening to let their professional registrations lapse from January the 1st unless government agrees to union demands to award them better paying conditions than counterparts in Queensland. Conciliation talks are due to start at two. New South Wales Premier Chris Minns has praised his departing Queensland counterpart Anastasia Palaget, saying she leaves after achieving remarkable political success. The Queensland leader made the shock announcement yesterday after almost nine years in the top job. And some inspiring news, the chairwoman of the Nobel Committee says this year's Peace Prize winner Nargis Mohammadi has been a shining light as the struggle for women's rights in Iran continues. The 51-year-old, who was serving multiple sentences in a Tehran prison on charges, including spreading propaganda, has won the award for speaking up against Iran's regime. And Millie, in sport, former Wallaby Peter Fitzsimmons says news that Eddie Jones has been hired to coach Japan should come as no surprise because he's done the same thing before. Reports in Japan say Jones will be confirmed in the job this week. That's less than two months after he walked out on the Wallabies only 12 months into a mm. five-year contract. I thought the uh, commentary from Peter Fitzsimons would have been a little bit more spicy than that, but Didn't we'll uh, see, see what he we says across the afternoon. Down, but it could thank only you. grow some more. <laughs> <laughs> it's all tame here at the country. Our Lara <laughs> Webster, thank you. Thank you. Lara Webster there with your news headlines. Let's head off to the Bureau now. Jake Phillips has all your weather details. Hey, Jake. Good afternoon, Millie. When is this heatwave going to end? Relentless heatwave, it's been described as by many. Yeah, it's been pretty protracted, hasn't it? And even though the temperatures today and for the next couple of days are a little bit milder than they have been, they're still at the hot end of the spectrum, particularly over the inland. So northerly winds 
uh, as they name the game at the moment, as they have been for a while, and they're going to persist through much of the coming week. Might get a little bit of respite towards the end of the week. But in the meantime, across the inland, we're still seeing maximums today in the high, t- high 30s or low 40s in the southwest. Along the coast, the temperatures are a little bit uh, milder due to onshore winds, but that's counteracted by the humidity a little bit, so it's quite sticky in a lot of coastal areas. So fairly unpleasant, uh, in, I think, in most people's book. Uh, it's maybe a bit of warmth that's fun for a little while, but it's been going a bit too long now. Mm. And the uh, heat, wave, heat wave warning is still current as well. So not as many uh, areas now covered by a severe heat wave conditions, but uh, low intensity heat wave is still covering uh, the bulk of the state at the moment. I so see. that's going to be the main story continuing, unfortunately, over the coming days. When is that reprieve hitting? Is there any kind of cool change coming or is this is this it till Christmas? Don't tell me that. <laughs> well, we are in a fairly warm time of the year, but we shouldn't mm-hmm. expect it to be like this all the time. Uh, at this stage, it's looking like uh, things will gradually weaken a little bit as the week progresses with a more substantial change moving through a large portion of the state at the end of the week. But it's only going to be fairly short-lived and then through the weekend, particularly in the West, the heat starts building up again. So we've just got to take, uh, seize on the little windows of opportunity whenever we can, I think. Mm. And uh, the other feature of the week coming up is that there'll be some more thunderstorms as well. We've seen fairly active storms over the last few days. Uh, yesterday, particularly over the southern inland through the Riverina and southwest slopes, there were some decent storms. I noticed that Wagga picked up a bit over 50 millimetres from a storm yesterday. Oh, wow. Standout rainfall, but very hit and miss, as is usually the case with thunderstorms. So a lot of places didn't see anything. But uh, today, once again, over the southern inland, we could see some more thunderstorms developing this afternoon. Already had a few strikes of lightning down that way this morning near the Victorian border. But if you're in areas around the southwest slopes, southern tablelands, and even the far southwest corner of the state, there is a risk that some of those storms could become severe this afternoon, So, particularly with respect to producing gusty winds and maybe some locally heavy rain. So just keep an eye out if you're in those southern areas for any thunderstorm warnings that may be issued through the course of uh, the afternoon or evening. And then as we head into midweek, we're going to see a trough move through the state. Uh, so in the west, more widespread storms on Wednesday, then shifting through to eastern districts on Thursday and Friday. It looks like a fairly significant uh, couple of storm days there from Wednesday to Friday. So those are also days to keep in your mind uh, if you're heading outdoors that there could be uh, some storms, potentially severe ones around. Well, Jake, thank you so much for the update this afternoon. No trouble. Thank you. Thank you. Jake Phillips there at the Bureau of Meteorology at 20 to 1 on the Country Hour. We are hearing um, apparently the... The MLA reporters, their computers were knocked out with a lightning strike there. But don't fear, we will bring you the markets right here on the Country Hour before one o'clock. But right now, let's head to the Riverina where Robert and April Andriaza have just wrapped up wheat harvest and are now focusing on their thriving rice crop. The couple, who are the current Sunrise Growers of the Year, are passionate about growing rice and the industry. But like most irrigators, the topic that really weighs on their mind is water. The Andriazas are unsure what their future in farming holds under the Murray-Darling Basin Plan and Water Buyback Scheme. Before we hear about those water worries, Robert Andre Azana explained to our reporter Cara Jeffrey just how his rice crops are looking. Very happy with it. Looks really good. Sometimes you've got to be careful if it looks too good. Um, but otherwise it's looking fantastic. Weed control's good. Uh, establishment was good. They've got a new variety now that's yielding probably a tonne to tonne and a half better a hectare than the previous variety. All in all, I cannot complain. I've got enough water for this year. Um, a little bit more allocated hopefully in the next few days with the amount of rain we've got in the, in the catchment. 
And so even in the last fortnight, a bit of a mixture with the weather, there's been so much rain and then now going into quite a hot week of weather now. So how will that fare for the crop? Look, we just finished our wheat harvest. We've, we predominantly grow soft wheat after rice because it gets low protein. You can't, you can't get high protein after a rice crop. So we target a, a soft wheat low protein, which ends up with Allied Mills. 75% of mine got contracted with Allied Mills, which ends up at Arnott's Biscuits and, and Greens cake mix that sort of um, ends up with uh, with those guys we pushed hard and we had ours off a little bit disappointed in the yield we had a bit of a wet july which took a fair bit of the uh, potential off it um, and it was too late to re-sow so we just committed to what we had left yeah a little bit disappointed with it in the end but otherwise yeah it's all off and sold and we're done so we're just moving on to the next job now because you're focusing on the soft wheat and you've got the rice how do those two fit together in your system Oh, perfectly. We harvest uh, in a March, April, uh, mulch it, and uh, we get a good stubble burn. And our rule of thumb is Anzac Day. We start sowing. That's the rule of thumb we work on. On a good establishment year, uh, you can push up to seven or eight tonne a hectare out of it. Um, there's a new variety we've got now, a soft wheat variety that just came out this year. It looks really good when it comes to yield and quality. Um, but that's, that's a fit that works me you can't grow barley after rice. It doesn't really work. Oats, people do grow oats. Canola's out. You definitely can't go canola. And we just, we just hit the soft wheat and, uh, and we just grow as much as we can. You've been recognised by Sunrise as the growers of the year. I guess looking ahead, what's the future look like for the Andreas's growing rice? Very concerned with this water business. I believe there's, yeah, it's a political thing. I don't think there's anything, I don't think they've even thought about what the ramifications. To give an example... We're sitting on three properties here. My wife and I grew enough rice last year. 22 million people had a meal from the amount we produced ourselves. That's nearly the population of Australia. And that, that flows on to restaurants, to the manufacturing. Sunrise employs 650 people. They're trained. They send them overseas. There's so much going on. We might be just two people on the farm or family on the farm. But there's so many other people employed. I've got a, a, a guy three days a week. My son's getting a job in town as a fitter and turner. I've got my daughter at the local uh, cotton gin. She's just finished a uh, Bachelor of Ag. So I don't know the future. I don't know. I, I, I don't trust the government. They promise you things and then they renege and it doesn't worry them at all. They can just do it and not think, not bat an eyelid. And do you think that's a sentiment shared by a lot of your fellow farmers around here that they don't know what their future holds? A lot, yes. I was in the lineup during the wheat harvest and a lot of them are walking around. You can see them, they're deflated if that makes sense. They don't know. There's People like to buy equipment, and I, I, I've even told my family here, no more equipment until we see what the future holds. We've got a massive investment here in land and water, and Sunrise is supporting us the best they can, and I will support Sunrise to the best of my ability as well, but I don't know. It's just so debilitating and so demoralising. They just make decisions, and there's, they don't see what's going on out on the ground and what we are doing and how we're doing it. We're the most efficient rice growers in the world. All our water is gravity-fed, so there's no energy costs. It's, it's a no-brainer system. It's, it, it, it's an industry that's up and going, too. You don't need to add to it, but it's just going to, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to shrink. Is it tempting to down tools, sell up and head to the coast? Oh, definitely, definitely. We thought my wife was from the coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's mentioned more than once. And as you get older, like, there's... there's you know, I've got kids coming potentially to come on the farm, but succession planning is a big problem. Big problem. We've got to have a lot of conversations before that happens. But I don't know. Look, we're at the age, 
I'm early 50s, got a few years left, but they go quick, really quickly. And I tell you what, it's very tempting sometimes. Robert Andreazza there from Wilbrigge near Griffith speaking with our reporter Cara Jeffrey on the Country Hour where it's quarter to one and uh, someone says it's no, there's no heat wave in Wagga. It's only 32 degrees there. Good to hear. And uh, Tim's asking why summer doesn't have any friends. Apparently it's not cool enough. Tim, thank you for a bit of a laugh here this afternoon. The New South Wales Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. Well, Australia's largest canned vegetable producer has started importing corn from Thailand again due to a domestic shortage. As Brandon Long reports, the company says drought, bushfires and floods in Australia have all led to those supply issues. Two years on from dealing with supply shortages caused by natural disasters, Simplot Australia, which owns brands including Edgel, is grappling with a similar situation. In a statement, the company says drought and bushfires led to corn shortages in 2021. This was unfortunately followed by widespread floods across eastern Australia and the Riverina region in 2022, again resulting in supply challenges. Fresh vegetables from our Australian farming community will always be our first choice. Of course, if there simply isn't enough to go around, we might need to look further afield. The majority of Edgel products are made in Simplot's factory at Bathurst, New South Wales by a team of over 200 people. Growers for Simplot were contacted about the shortage but declined to comment. At nearby Cowra, farmer and Lachlan Valley Water board member Ed Fagan says last year's floods had a major impact on food production. I'm not surprised that they they need to go and and, uh, get processed corn out of Thailand. You'd have crops that were sort of, you know, at the beginning of the growing cycle and you had crops that were, or paddocks that were getting formed ready for plants. Didn't matter whether it was sweet corn or maize or whether it was other summer cropping, uh, cotton example, um, and they all just got wiped out. So it took out crops that were already growing plus a delayed planting of, um, of a second crop. So that not only did that happen on the Lachlan, but it also happened on the Macquarie Valley and it also happened down in the Riverina on the Murrumbidgee the Murray and, uh, and the Goulburn. So it impacted a, a very large area. The floods that we had last year were at the beginning of November and there were two floods back-to-back on the Lachlan, about 10 days apart. And the second flood was uh, the biggest since 1952. So the Wyangler Dam, which is the main dam on the Lachlan, it holds about two and a half times Sydney Harbour. And the gates were open on, on the dam uh, they opened higher than they've ever been opened and the, the release out of Wyangler Dam was the, the largest release that they've ever released out of the dam. So what that resulted in was the largest flood on the Lachlan since 1952. Big difference between 1952 and today is the amount of development on the valley compared to before. So the damage uh, that was resulted from that flood was significantly higher than any flood that's gone through before. Simplot is currently undertaking a $65 million upgrade to its Bathurst manufacturing facility and a $40 million acquisition of farming land in the central west region of New South Wales. The works are anticipated to be completed this year. Mr Fagan says the investment provided confidence to the area's irrigated agriculture industry. The investment that uh, Simplot are putting into Bathurst gives a lot of confidence to, um, to the irrigated agriculture around this area. They're not going to invest the sort of money that they're investing over there for nothing. So they've invested in land as well. They've bought a few properties down near Forbes and they already own one here at Cowra and at Bathurst. Yeah, we know that there's going to be a bit of action at Bathurst, which is going to be good. 
Ed Fagan is a Cara Farmer and Lachlan Valley Water Board member, speaking there with Brandon Long. At 11 minutes to one on the New South Wales Country Hour, Justine um, says it's fear-mongering the conversation around buybacks, while uh, Kate from Young says the Sunrise story is amazing and that's why Kate keeps suggesting it's important the New South Wales Country Hour is broadcast into the city as well. I know, Kate, it hasn't happened after all these years, but let's see what 2024 brings. Hello, I'm Sally Sara. Join me for The World Today. Immigration shake-up. The federal government will cut net migration and reform the visa system amid housing and skill shortages. But will it be enough? The humanitarian situation in Gaza worsens amid food shortages and continued fighting. And second-hand electric cars. Experts predict a boom in sales as more Australians seek EVs at an affordable price. Those stories are more coming up on The World Today. But on the country hour at 10 to 1 with the lifting cattle prices, we've seen thousands of extra cattle go under the hammer at sale yards across the state in the last couple of weeks. Lismore Livestock Agent Kevin Cocciola has seen prices double in the last three weeks and numbers swell at Lismore. He says a cyclone hitting Queensland could influence the market on the north coast this week and told Kim Honan it's looking to be a strong finish to the year. I've said to clients all the way through for the last couple of months, it's been dry, but August, September, October and always been our driest months, have always been, and it was a little bit drier this year. But, um, you know, people were panicking because they were getting told El Nino and droughts and everything else. But I used to tell them, look, forget that. If you've got to sell the cattle, sell them. But what's going to happen is tomorrow, you could sell your cattle today, tomorrow morning you could get two inches in a storm. And that's what's actually happened over the last six weeks. We're getting storms, you know, and... And, uh, you know, and they've been everywhere sort of thing, and that's really improved the cattle, and that's put a lot of confidence back in people. we only got to look around this north coast. This Lismore area, like, you know, a month ago it was brown as brown, like walking on the beach, but now it's all green. I think um, processors, for example, were hoping to recoup some of their losses with the lower prices. Well, you can't... You, you look, it's hard to have cattle sales without processors, and every, you never begrudge anyone making money. It's... That's the law of the land, and uh, hey, everyone has their good times, everyone has their hard times, but it's just unfortunately a lot of people have more harder times than good times in this when you're on the land. But no, everything works out, and everyone's uh, dependent on one another. And what do you think we'll see for the last week of sales here in Lismore? Numbers, price-wise, you've got the Wednesday sale and you've got the Friday breeder sale. Yeah, look, I think the job will be all right. Like processors, if there's look. It's usually the last fat sale, whether it be uh, anywhere. Usually there's not a lot of cattle around. Uh, people hold off, you know, but now, uh, hey, processors might need cattle to... If this, if this cyclone turns up Monday up in Queensland, well, there'll be no cattle up there. That's what they're saying. Well, if there's cattle come on the market down here, I think you'll find processors be looking for cattle, you know, just to put in the paddock to, um, to uh, operate when they start again. And, uh, yeah... It all depends on mar- on weather, most of the markets, and but it'll be a big influence if they know what they're talking about. If they know what they're talking about, the cyclone coming across. So you think we could see more buyers coming from Queensland? I, it's been, like in this local area, without the Queensland buyers coming to this area, but geez, it would have been pretty tough. Like they, they stayed here right through the dry time and, uh, and the money was how the money was no one can uh, begrudge that that's what it was that was what it was but without those queensland operators were they getting rain right up further there if they weren't here on the north coast i tell you what it'd be a very sorry sight
And when the Northern Rivers Livestock Exchange opens, it's expected to early in the new year under new operators. How do you think that will change the, the sale yards here? Because it's certainly been a very busy facility over the last six months. Well, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future uh, anywhere else, but you know, the old story doesn't matter how big and flash the motel is, it's who runs the motel and how, is how, uh, how it runs it, how, who runs it and how it's operated. And I'm pretty pleased how we run and operate Lismore Say Yards. Do you think you'll be back selling at NRLX? Well, we'll see what happens down the future. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you better ask any of the other agents. But, uh, yeah, look, one day it's... Uh, I, 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 honestly, I honestly don't know what's going on. I honestly don't know. I haven't heard a thing. And I don't think any of the other agents have heard anything either. That's agent Kevin Cocciola from Ian Weir and Son speaking there with Kim Honan. Let's head off to other markets now. Leanne Dax is at Wagga. Good afternoon. A massive yarding of 7,480 cattle were offered at Wagga and were disrupted last night by lightning strikes that shut down the computers. This has delayed the sale somewhat and heavy export cattle are mainly the only stock through at this stage. The market's weaker for most categories with heavy cows losing 10 cents to range from 220 to 235. Medium cows have also dropped 10 to 15 cents selling at 165 to 212. Heavy steers to the process have gained 20 cents and are making from 260 to 295 while bullocks over 600 kilo are down 25 and range from 222 to 292. Heavy heifers have also followed the cheaper trend slipping 20 and trading at 219 to 255. The large supply of cattle made feedlot buyers more choosy resulting in feeder steers so far 15 cents cheaper selling from 255 to 315. Feeder heifers are also back 12 and selling at 220 to 262. There's still 5,000 cattle to be sold and I'm Leanne Dax for MLA. To Forbes with Crystal Ridley. Numbers eased this sale with agents yarding 2,000 head. Quality was similar to previous sales with some good lines of finished cattle offered along with the planer types. The usual buyers are present competing in an easier market. Yearling steers slipped 15 cents a kilo with middle and heavy weights to processors selling from 255 to 280. Those to feed received from 240 to 324 cents. The heifer portion was also 15 easier with processors paying from 220 to 250 for middle and heavy weights. Planer types to feed received from 220 to 263. Heavy steers and bullocks sold from 219 to 255. Better grown heifers received from 225 to 248. Cows also slipped 15 cents. Heavy two score from 175 to 198. Three and four score from 195 to 220 cents. This has been Crystal Ridley at Forbes from LA. To Bendigo with Jenny Kelly. Good afternoon. Thunder, lightning, rain, and the market had a bit of go in it today as well. Heavy lambs, twenty to thirty dollars dearer. And what was interesting is, even though prices have stepped up, there were still only a few hundred thirty kilo plus lambs available out of a bigger yard in of twenty four thousand head. The thirty kilo plus lambs, two hundred to two hundred twenty dollars. Heavy lambs, twenty six to thirty kilos, one hundred sixty seven to two hundred seven dollars. Heaviest suckers, one hundred sixty six to one hundred ninety two. General run of trade lambs, $115 to $150. The sale did touch on 7 bucks a kilo at times, but averages for good slaughter lambs were tracking between $620 to $670 cents a kilo, and there were still plainer lambs under $600 cents at times. 
Light lambs firm for a few dollars dearer at $60 to $100. Small restocking lambs 50 to 80 to average $62 to the paddock. Heavy sheep have begun four to eight dollars cheaper at fifty to sixty-five dollars a head, but light merino sheep were five dollars dearer at thirty-seven to sixty dollars. Ballpark cost for mutton one hundred and sixty to two hundred and twenty cents. Jenny Kelly for MLA. David Monks at Dubbo. The second last half of the year produced a little smaller yarding of thirteen thousand two hundred and fifty lambs. It was a mixed yarding with a good selection of well-finished trade and heavyweight lambs, along with some well-finished merino lambs. There were also fair numbers of secondary lambs and hoggets. Trade lambs were 10 to 15 dearer with the trade weight new season lambs selling from 100 to 160. Trade weight old lambs weighing 20 to 24 kilograms sold from 103 to 177 to average between 675 and 700 cents a kilogram. Heavyweight lambs were 30 to 40 dollars dearer with the old lambs over 24 kilograms selling from 169 to 238 to average between 710 and 780 cents. Heavyweight new season lambs sold to 239 dollars with the heaviest lambs still to be sold. Merino lambs were 20 to 30 dearer with the trade weights, selling from 66 to 162. Lambs to the restockers were also dearer despite the hot dry weather, with young lambs going back to the paddock selling from 52 to 92. Hoggets were 13 dearer selling to 93. We have the balance of the lambs and 10,800 mutton still to be sold. This is David Monk reporting from Dubbo. Let's head down to Coral with Caroline, Caroline Ronald. Good afternoon. Off the back of last week's dearer trends, agents penned over 18,000 sheep and lambs. A full field of buyers were present, joined by a new northern processor. Strong buyer demand drove prices up 20 to $40. New seafers and heavy trade lambs jumped 20 to $24, 133 to 184 Heavy lambs soared $40, 182 to 205 Old lambs, heavy trade, jumped 12 to $32, 142 to 205 Heavy and extra heavy types, 170 to 215 Mutton sold to weaker trends. Heavy crossbred ewes slipped $20, 45 to $65. Heavy merinos ease twelve dollars fifty seven to sixty six. Trade sheep softened eight to twelve, selling from twenty six to fifty five. I'm Caroline Ronald for MLA at Corowa. And up to Tamworth with James Armitage. Good afternoon. Numbers increased to 2,560 head with the upcoming long break and hot weather taking hold. All categories represented with a good selection of young cattle. Quality and condition was fair to good in front of all the regular buyers. Restock and feedlot demand was weaker, resulting in cheaper trends for the most part. Lightweight yielding steers, 264 to 32 cents a kilo, was significantly cheaper. The heifer portion, 180 to 288 cents. Medium and heavyweight feeder steers were 8 to 10 cents easier and more in places, 240 to 336 cents. Heavy trade were much cheaper, 240 to 262. Medium weight yielding heifers up to 8 cents cheaper, reaching a top of 285 cents. Heavy weights a shade dearer, 245 to 284 cents, with trade to 290 cents a kilo. Reduced processor demand saw heavy grind steers cheaper, 224 to 258 cents. Plain conditioned cows were shade dearer, 125 to 199, while the three and four score medium and heavyweights saw a firm to cheaper trend, 188 to 220 cents a kilo. James Armitage for MLA in Tamworth. And that's our look at the markets for today on the Country Hour. Thanks for your company. You don't forget at any time you can jump on the ABC Rural website, sign up to the newsletter as well, and you get all those great stories straight to your inbox or your local rural reports. Back this, tomorrow morning, Josh Becker, Lara Webster and Kim Honan. Right now it's time for the latest from the newsroom at one o'clock. <laughs>